Oh, Father, we come to you this morning and uh, thank you for already meeting us so powerfully as we um, meditated on who you are, the one true God, and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, on how you have forgiven us of our sins and you have called us to yourself and you have sealed us with your spirit and that you will hold us fast in your love. Father, we we praise you this morning for your gospel, and we praise you that, that now we are your sons and daughters. We praise you that um, we're part of your family, and we praise you that you've not only justified us, but you've adopted us, and that you call us to come to you with our hearts and with our lives, and to take refuge in you. Well, God, we have many needs in our particular local body this morning. We have, we have many who are struggling, some who are here and some who are not here with, with sickness and with health issues, Father. And we pray for your hand of healing, and we also pray for your hand of sustaining, God. We pray that you would um, cause sickness to go away and for people to have full health. But, but for those who, who that is not your will for, Lord, we pray that you would sustain them with the ability to magnify Christ in their sickness, to magnify Christ in their pain, to point beyond themselves to Him and, and proclaim in the way they live and the way they handle their suffering to say Christ is worth it, God. We pray that you would enable them to do this by your Spirit. God, we pray for Lauren Haynes as she is getting started in Israel, and we pray that you would uh, bless her with your presence today. We pray that you would fill her with your spirit so that she can be full of love and joy and peace and all the fruits of walking in your spirit, God. We pray that you would enable her ministry to be fruitful and that she would be able to um, display the joy that comes from being in Christ. God, we pray that you would give her opportunities to share the gospel. And we pray that you would use their team and the FCA ministry in Israel this summer to do a, a work of witness to the Jewish people, the Muslim people, any others that are part of those camps, that, that it would be a witness to your worth, a witness to Jesus Christ, a witness to his coming kingdom. And God, we pray that you would save people through the ministry there this summer. God, we pray that you would help us as a church. We pray that you would enable us to live in our communities and to live in this community in such a way that we too are witnesses. God, we pray that, that we would not relegate missions to someone else and something else somewhere else, but that each of us would take up the gospel with courage and boldness and go toward the lost. God, we, we pray that your word would be powerful to save, that you would use us. God, we know we have sin, and we know we have weakness, and we know we have need. And so we open your word because your word is completely sufficient for every weakness, every sin, every need that we bring this morning. God, your word is a light that exposes our darkness and guides our path. And so we pray that your word would shine into our hearts this morning and just expose what's there because our hearts are deceitful, God, so show us what is in our hearts. But, but we pray you would not just show us what's in our hearts, but you would lead us on your path, that your word would light the way for us to then walk in holiness, to walk in obedience, to walk in your joy, to walk for your glory. God, your word is useful for equipping us. Your word is useful for training us. Your word is useful for correcting us. And we need all of these things this morning. God, equip us to do your will. Train us. Make us ready to do every good work that you call us to do. God, we know that your word reveals your glory to us. We know that your word tells us your story. We know that your word proclaims your good news to our hearts. And so we pray today that you would show us Christ. And God, we pray that we would taste and see that you are good as we open your word. Not just know it in our minds, but 
taste and see spiritually, God, that, that we would all to get together today have a sense of what a good, glorious God you are. Lord, we anticipate the mighty work of your spirit as we open your word, and we pray that it would go forth and powerfully change us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the last week in our series through the book of Daniel called Home. And our sermon today is, is called The Path Home. It's, it's part two of, of the last section of this book. Last week was The Path Home from the Air, and this week is going to be The Path Home from the Ground. Last week we kind of saw the big picture, and this week we're going to see the details of, of what the path home looks like, the path from exile back to our true home with God. What does God say that path looks like? And we're going to look at few different visions today and see the details of that. But before we do, I just want to, uh, again, reintroduce you to Apocalyptic. Uh, we, we talked about it some last week, but not all of you were here. And even those of us who are, it's just hard to remember when we enter into this genre of literature, what is going on. And so uh, I want to ask a question this morning. Uh, first, let me just make sure you all understand when I say apocalyptic, I mean the genre of scripture that is filled with images and symbols and and strange foreign things, right? And, and it usually has to do with the future. It's a mixture of prophecy and foretelling, and it comes in, in just a, a variety of, of forms, and it's called apocalyptic. And, and it's the part of the scripture that we don't know much to do with, but the question I want to ask is, why did God give us apocalyptic literature? Because when we're studying this, what, what we're trying to do is, is we're trying to understand it enough so that we can then interpret it and say, this is what this means. Why couldn't God have just given us what it means? Why did, why did he want to give us the apocalyptic portions of scripture instead of just telling us, here's the message behind it? And I was thinking about that, that this week, and, and I think that this is one of the reasons God gave us apocalyptic literature, because our natural perspective on life is based in the familiar. Our, the natural way that we view reality is based on what we see and what we hear and what we feel and what we know. We walk outside in the morning and we just immediately begin perceiving life based on what we take in, what we see, what we experience. Reality is what we can see. We look to the things that are seen. That, that is natural to us. Now, apocalyptic literature brings a just disruptive strangeness to that reality. It, it just comes at us and it, it confronts our perspective of reality and it clashes with our worldview. It, it brings strange images, it brings figures of beasts, it brings numbers that we don't know what they mean, and it confronts our false reality with actual reality. And, and it does it in, in the strangeness that it does it because by, by doing that, God is waking us up. He's saying this is so different from what you think life is about. This is, this is, there's so much more going on than what you think you see. Reality is so much more than you naturally think reality is. There's, there's our perceived, false, finite reality, and then apocalyptic literature comes to us, and, and it just clashes with our preconceived notions, and, and God says, wake up to what the world is really about. Wake up to what's really happening. Don't look to the things that are seen. Look to the things that are unseen. And it, and it causes us to ask this question, which vision of reality am I going to live by? Am I going to live according to what I can see and what I can hear and what I can feel and what I know is true in my finite understanding? Or am I going to trust this version of reality? Am I going to trust that there is more than meets the eye to this world? Am I going to trust the, the vision of reality that God gives us here? Am I going to live that way? There, there, there's two versions of life put before us because whatever your worldview is, is how you're going to live your life. Whatever you think the world is about is going to affect your everyday decisions. And God's saying, don't let what you see be what influences you, but, but let this book and let these images and let this version of reality be what influences you because he's the true God and he's speaking to us the true story, not just what we see. So I think apocalyptic helps us look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And I think that's why the strangeness is there. So, so we want to open up this book today and, and, and say, God, what is your version of reality? What, what is true reality? What, what is 
actually going on with the world. Now, a couple other things before we jump into the text. Uh, just from last week, let's, let's remember how we should read this portion of Scripture. There were three things we looked at last week that said this is how we should read apocalyptic literature. One, we should read apocalyptic literature humbly. We should read it humbly, and that's because it's highly symbolic. And like I told you last week, you could go to uh, a Christian bookstore, or you could look online for commentaries from Daniel, and they will categorize these commentaries according to what view the commentator holds on how he interprets the symbols in this book. And they're all good commentaries. They all believe the gospel. If they were writing commentaries on other books of the Bible, they'd probably all look very similar. But when it comes to this apocalyptic literature, these symbols cause division, and these symbols cause mis- different interpretations. And so we need to read humbly and know that we don't have the corner on what we think the book means. We want to press in. We want to study hard. We want to do our best to understand. But, but we should read humbly, knowing that, that not everyone agrees on what these symbols all mean. There are differences, and that should humble us. doesn't mean that there isn't a true meaning. There is a true meaning. Someone's right. But we should be humble that it might not be us. Now, second, we should read confidently. Humbly, but also confidently. Because even though there might be, there might be differences on what these symbols mean, what everyone agrees on is that God's word is given to equip us to live for his glory. God's word is is meant not to just fill us with information about the future, but to give us what we need to live today for his glory. And so we should read confidently, knowing that even though we might have questions at the end of the day about what this symbol means or what that number means, God's message is clear. God's message is going to be clear if we study and read and listen to his word. How is God calling us to live? That's what these chapters are about. And, And then third, Apocalyptic is centered on Christ, so we should read expectantly. We should read ready to see Christ. We should read with a view to Jesus Christ, knowing that even here, even in in these visions, even around these images, even in the mystery and confusion of apocalyptic literature, the gospel is here. And we want to look for Christ. We want to find Christ. And and we want to run to him when we see him. And so we're going to read humbly, but confidently and expectantly today. So chapter 7, you can turn to Daniel 7 at this point, and we'll start jumping in. We're going to be in basically chapters 8 through 12 today, but we'll start just looking at Daniel 7 briefly to review where we were, because Daniel 7 gives the big picture of the path home. It's it's the path home from the air. And essentially what Daniel 7 shows is a vision of four beasts, a vision of four terrifying beasts that, that are different and hideous and and destructive, and the fourth beast in particular uh, takes on God's people. He wars against God. He wars against God's people, and and these four beasts represent four kingdoms, four kingdoms on the earth, four kings on the earth, and we looked at what those those probably are. It's probably Babylon. It's probably the Medo-Persian Empire. It's probably Greece, and the fourth beast probably is Rome, but we even saw last week that 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 doesn't quite fit the picture because there's a lot more going on with the fourth beast than we can look back at history and say that was Rome. There's, and, and we'll talk about that today in more detail. But we saw these four beasts that are four kingdoms. And, and the angel says, you can look at verse 18 of chapter 7, of verse 17, the four beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And so Daniel 7 told us there's going to be four kingdoms. They're going to oppress God's people. But in the end, God's people will possess the kingdom. Now, how does that happen? In Daniel 7, it happens by the Ancient of Days coming, taking his throne, and judging the beasts. And it happens by one like a son of man, who Jesus identified with himself, coming, taking on the judgment that God's people deserve so that they could be part of his kingdom, ascending to the Father, receiving the kingdom, all nations coming to recognize him as king, and then him returning and judging the beasts and saving his people. Salvation coming to God's people through the judgment that the Ancient of Days executes through the Son of Man. Now, that's a big picture from the air, 30,000 feet. But the big idea of chapter 7 is these kingdoms will come to an end, and God's people will inherit God's kingdom forever through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's the picture of Daniel 7. 
Now, Daniel 8 through 12, we're going to land the plane and start walking through this text. We're going to see the details from the ground. And what we're going to see is three visions from the ground, three distinct visions in chapters 8 through 12 that Daniel has that close out this book. We're reading five chapters today, and we are not going to read every single verse, hardly at all of that, actually. We're going we're gonna to land in key places and try to understand this text, and that's why in the roundup this week, I encourage you to, to take time to read it and to ask questions just to acquaint yourself with this text. But what we're going to do is just look at the general terrain of each chapter and of each vision and, and then pull out the, the basic meaning, the basic principles for us to apply. So three visions after this first one, which was the big picture, they all have to do with that first vision. And the first one is a vision that has to do with tribulation, a vision that has to do with tribulation. This vision comes in chapter 8. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, and we see when this vision comes, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So this is still during the Babylonian Empire, and King Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon, and the third year was getting right close to the, to the point where Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so that's when Daniel's receiving this vision. He's receiving this vision on the cusp of the end of Babylon, the cusp of the beginning of Persia. And what he sees in the vision is, first, a, a ram with two horns. All right, a ram with two horns. And this ram, the two horns, one is higher than the other. Now, who remembers from last week one of the beasts where it had this picture of one side being higher than the other? Which beast was it? Then I remember? It was a bear, right? There was, it, that was the second beast. And it was a bear with one side raised up higher than the other. And we identified that beast with the Medo-Persian Empire. Later in this chapter, the angel says that this goat, or this ram, this ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. In the text, it says that in verse 20. These are the kings of Media and Persia. And so, just you got to follow with me here that the second beast of chapter 7 is the ram in chapter 8. That's who we're talking about. And so the ram has two Two horns, one's higher than the other, and, and basically it just gives the description that this ram conquers the whole earth, that no one can stop it, that it comes in swiftly and no one can stand before it, and this ram becomes great. And it's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire, which came and it defeated Babylon, and, and it became the empire of the world. But then what comes next is a goat. And this goat has one horn, and this goat comes, and even though no one could stop the ram, this goat defeats the ram. This goat comes and just obliterates the ram, and the goat then becomes powerful. And again, the text tells us that this goat is Greece, which was the third beast of last week. So, so just follow with the kingdoms here. We're talking about the Medo-Persian Empire conquering Babylon, taking over, and then the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great being the one horn coming and, and taking over the, the Medo-Persians, the Greek Empire. And so... This ram becomes great. Look down at verse 8. The goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. That, that's describing that after Alexander the Great would die, that four kings came in his place and they divided his kingdom. And then verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, out of one of these four horns. And this grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And look over later in the chapter at verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. And so out of this goat comes 
ultimately this little horn. And just like the little horn from the fourth beast in chapter 7, this little horn from the goat in chapter 8 makes war against God's people. And he wars against God. And it's important to note that chapter 7 has this happening from the fourth beast. Chapter 8 has this happening from the goat, which is the third beast. What's going on? Is there confusion here? What's going on is that God is forming a pattern for us to understand. He's forming a type for us to understand that, that it's not that one of these is the actual beast and one's not. It's that this is what happens to God's people. This, this is what is going to happen time and time and time again throughout history. There's going to be rulers who come, and in their power and their greatness, they war against God's people. And the New Testament tells us that ultimately this is going to come to fruition in one final ruler. You might know the term antichrist. That's not in our text today, but the New Testament uses it. Paul says the man of lawlessness. Jesus says the abomination of desolation, all referring to this final ruler that is going to fulfill this pattern that we saw in chapter 7 and we see in chapter 8 of a ruler who is going to come and he's going to war against God's people. And he's going to have success in that for a while, for a while. And so it happens time and time again, and it will happen in an ultimate way before Christ returns. But look what it says. He shall be broken by no human hand. He shall be broken by no human hand. Now, you remember, there was a stone cut out in chapter 2, and it was cut out by no human hand. The stone was cut out by the hand of God, and that stone crushed the statues of chapter 2 and filled the whole earth into a great mountain. That stone is the kingdom of God. In chapter 5, no human hand appeared to, to the king, to Belshazzar, and wrote on the wall and wrote his condemnation. No, it wasn't a human hand. He saw a hand. And here, no human hand comes and destroys this final ruler. God is going to judge this ruler. But notice the emphasis in this chapter is, is really not on the breaking of this ruler, but on the tribulation God's people will experience. That, that, that's the point of chapter 8. God's people will experience great tribulation before they are delivered. That's what God's telling Daniel. There is deliverance at the end, but he wants Daniel to know your people will experience great tribulation before they are delivered. And Daniel's response is in, chapter 20, in verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And right there, just be comforted. If you're a little lost, so was Daniel, okay? He did not understand it, and he was appalled. He, 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 was, he was literally just sickened by what God was showing him here, that his people were going to suffer like this. But he went about the king's business, and he continued to live his life. He continued to serve, and he continued to trust. A few years later, Daniel gets another vision. Chapter 9, it's the first year of King Darius. So, so now Daniel has lived through the transition of power from Babylon to the Persian Empire, to the Medo-Persian Empire. And King Darius is reigning now. It's his first year reigning. He's king over the Chaldeans, and and. Most of chapter 9 really sets up the context for the vision that comes at the end. Now, I'll just say this as a side note. Chapter 9 is one of the best prayers in the Bible. It is incredible to study as a prayer and, and, and as a template for confessing our sin to God, looking to Him, confessing His righteousness and His judgments, and then making petition for His glory. It is an absolutely great prayer. And we're going to look at it a little bit, but not nearly as much as, as we might be able to. But it really sets the context. So chapter 9, look in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What's going on there is Daniel is studying his Bible. Daniel says he's, he's reading Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was written to the exiles in Babylon. So, so Daniel has a copy of the book of Jeremiah, and he's reading it, and he's studying it. 
And he probably comes across, there's a few verses in Jeremiah that say this, but a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, where he says, God says to his people, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And, and he says, after 70 years, I will bring you back. God promises that over and over again in Jeremiah. He says, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. This is, this is judgment. This is discipline for your sin against me. You're going to go to Babylon's exiles. I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar, but after 70 years, I will punish Babylon, and I will bring you back. Daniel's hidden there. 70 years after he was exiled, Nebuchadnezzar was just punished. He's reading Jeremiah, and he says, it's been 70 years. It's been 70 years. This, this is the year that God's supposed to bring us back. And what, and what God said in Jeremiah is that that coming back will coincide with his people seeking him with all their heart, with his people turning to him with all their heart. And so what Daniel does is, is he takes on the responsibility of doing that for his people. This prayer is a prayer representing Israel where he says, I am going to seek the Lord with all my heart because he promised after 70 years he's going to bring us home. And so he goes into this prayer and he confesses who God is. In verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, keeps his commandments. He, he's, he praises who God is and then he says, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned aside, we've not listened. And he confesses the sins of God's people. And this whole chapter is this interplay between saying, God, you are like this, you are great, you are merciful, you are covenant-keeping, we are sinful, we have not listened, we have turned away, we deserve punishment. And then in verse 16, he says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins, because of the iniquities of our fathers. Now therefore, O God, verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. We don't present our pleas before you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so Daniel is just pouring out his heart before God, saying, Act, listen, do what you said, forgive us of our sins, bring us back, restore Jerusalem, restore your people, just like you said you would. And then... The vision happens. While he's speaking and praying, the angel Gabriel comes to him. Who you might recognize in the New Testament as the angel who came to Mary. Angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says, Daniel, I've come to give you understanding. I've come to give you insight. And look in verse 23. He says, I've come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. I'm going to tell you a message from God that comes from his heart of love for you. You're praying for, for God to restore your people to Jerusalem. You're praying for God to forgive your sins and bring you back into the land where you can have peace and prosperity and a kingdom again. And here's God's answer. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy weeks. Seventy weeks. So it's been 70 years, and this term 70 weeks literally is 70 sevens. 70 sevens, which, which is probably means 70 sets of seven. So it's been 70 years, and God's saying, no, we're going to have 70 sets of seven years left. 490 more years to go. 70 weeks might be done, and I'm going to bring your people back, like I said, but there's still 77s left for my true plan to take place. And that plan has not to do with just bringing you back to Israel. That plan has to do with atoning for sin and bringing in righteousness. That plan has to do with putting an end to sin, to finishing transgression, to filling up my word, to anointing the most holy place for your people to be a true holy place for your people to be in and worship me. That's going to be 77s. You've been living 70 years, but this is far from being over. 
77s are left. And, and this centers on, this 77 centers on a figure who is, in this text, an anointed one. Read with me, 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, so that's, that's when Cyrus says, your people can return. That's when Cyrus says they can go back and they can restore Jerusalem, they can build up the city again. That happened, we have that in the scriptures. From that point, until the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and then for 62 weeks, it, the city, shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. So they're going to go back to Jerusalem, they're going to build it, but there's still going to be trouble. There's still going to be suffering, there's still going to be tribulation. And then 26, and after the 62 weeks, the 62 sets of seven, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. An anointed one, a Christ, a Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And then the text goes on to say that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. Desolations are decreed. There's going to be a desolator. That figure of chapter 7 and chapter 8 is going to come. And at the end of that, the decree to end will be poured out on the desolator. But what is key in this text is this anointed one who will be cut off and have nothing. Now, who knows what Daniel understood of this anointed one at the time, but we can look back and, and see. He is saying that, that a Christ will come and be cut off, and that that cutting off of, of, of that figure is going to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. That's Jesus that he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ, and he's saying that after 70 sets of seven, after six, here 69 sets of seven, he's going to come, and if... if Listen, we're not going to get into the numbers, but if you just go do the math from when Daniel received this to when Christ came, it's 69 sets of seven. This, this is accurate. That 490 years later was when Jesus showed up on the scene, and when Jesus lived his life, and then he was cut off on the cross to take people's sin, and to bear the iniquity, and to die their death, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And then this 70th week, this is where people get really... Um, Divided over what does this mean? Are we in the 70th week now? Did it already happen? Is it still going to come? And I'm not going to answer my thoughts on that right now, but I will say that the 70th week will end. The 70th week will end, and the decreed end will be poured out on the desolator. And at that point, the kingdom of God will be established fully and totally. That's what this is saying. But, but here's, here's what this vision is primarily about. God's people must be restored to him from their sin. I don't think I gave the heading to this, but I think it's on there, restoration. So Daniel's praying for restoration. He's praying for the restoration from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. He's praying for the restoration of the temple, the restoration of Israel. And God responds by saying, I'm going to bring Israel back like I said I would, but that's not the restoration you need. The restoration you need is a restoration from sin, a restoration back to me. That's what the entire Bible is about. That's what God's whole plan is about. Not that you get to live in the land in peace and prosperity, but that you get to be back with me as, as, as my people and me as your God. Restoration from sin is what you need, and that's what's going to happen after 70 sets of seven. And God's telling this to Daniel because he's greatly loved. He wants him to know that I love you, and I'm going to send a Messiah to take your sin for you. And so that leads to the final vision this vision spans chapters 10 through 12. It's probably the most intense vision of the book. And if you just look with me in chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was about a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And he goes on to describe seeing, seeing other figures 
angelic figures that come and, and they start speaking to him. Daniel falls as though dead. Verse 11, this figure says, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. And what this, this figure, this angelic figure says to Daniel is, when you started praying and fasting and mourning three weeks ago, you notice he said he did it for three weeks. When you started praying and fasting three weeks ago, he says, I tried to come to you, this angel. But he says that he was withheld from coming because there was a, a spiritual power that was opposing him and keeping him from coming. And this is very strange to us. This, 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 is, this is what I'm talking about, things that are unseen, right? Because what this is showing is there is a, a spiritual heavenly conflict going on that we don't even know anything about. We don't see it at all. But this angel is trying to come to Daniel to tell him God's message. And this other fallen angel is opposing him and keeping him from coming. So, so we know it's not God here because th- th- no angel is going to oppose God from coming. But one of his messengers he's sending and, and there's this spiritual conflict taking place. And he says, I finally was able to come because another angel came and helped me. It's okay to feel like this is foreign right now. It is foreign. It's very different than what we're used to. But he says, but I've come, and I have a message to tell you. In chapter 11, he describes detailed foretelling of what is going to happen to his people. He, he describes details that we can go back and trace their history of rising of kings and falling of kings and wars and battles, all leading up to, again, a king who's going to come and make war against God's people, make war against God, and, and, and be killed in the end. So the same same essential pattern is going on, but here there's so many more details that he's given, and and he's just outlining this great conflict. But what we learn here is that behind these earthly conflicts that are going on is this heavenly battle that's going on. Behind these wars and these kings and these people rising and falling is this heavenly conflict that is the true battle, the great conflict. And in chapter 12, turn with me to chapter 12, just read with me at verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt." Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so this vision ends with this picture of a final battle, a final time of trouble that is unprecedented in nature. There's never been anything like it. And at that time, God's people which the text defines as those whose names are written in the book. That's important. If your name's written in the book, you're in this text. God's people will be delivered. And then it gives this picture of a resurrection. But, but notice this is not just a resurrection of God's people. This is a resurrection of all people. This verse is the clearest statement in the Old Testament about the resurrection. It's the only verse in the Old Testament that that describes a double resurrection, a resurrection of the living and of the dead, a resurrection of some to everlasting life and a resurrection of some to everlasting contempt, everlasting suffering, everlasting condemnation. And he says at that time, your people will be delivered. And what that means is that they're going to rise from the dead and they're going to shine like the stars forever and ever and ever. And so this final vision is is, is a vision ultimately of resurrection. It's, it's a vision ultimately of this great conflict, hell waging war against heaven as God redeems the people for himself, finally coming to an end as God resurrects all people, some to judgment, some to everlasting life. And that's the final vision Daniel gets. Now we're going to wait to look at the last few verses till the end of our time today. But what we want to do now is try to bring these three visions together and understand what is God saying about the path home. What is God telling Daniel about returning from exile? You see, see, Daniel understood exile to refer to God's people in Babylon needing to go back to Jerusalem. That's what exile was for him. And God's coming in this 
set of visions, and he's saying exile, true exile, is much more than what you're thinking. He's, he's reshaping and redefining what exile means for Daniel. The exile from Jerusalem to Babylon is not the ultimate issue. That's not your greatest problem. This is what true deliverance from exile means. This is the main idea. I think it's going to be on the screen for us. This is what true deliverance is. God delivers his people from sin, through suffering, to glory in Christ. God delivers his people from sin, through suffering, to glory in Christ. That's what deliverance from exile ultimately means. The exile that, that all people are in is an exile in sin. It's an exile where we have been separated from our God who made us. We have been cast away from his presence. We have been cast out of Eden, out of the garden, out of his intention for us to live with him because we rebelled against him. We're in exile. And God's whole plan from beginning of the Bible all the way through the end for all of history is to redeem a people for himself out of sin, to, to bring them back from that exile. He's going to deliver his people from sin. He's going to do it through suffering. The New Testament has dozens and dozens and dozens of passages like these where the apostles tell God's people, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Paul said to the disciples in Acts 14, he said, it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people believe that these texts refer to a great tribulation, a defined set of time called the tribulation. And some people believe that God's people will be there, and some people believe God's people won't be there. Some believe that we'll be, we'll be taken out of this world before that happens. Some people believe that we will be here during that. And one, I don't think that these texts really clearly answer that question. I don't think they're trying to, but I do believe they're telling us that either way, God's people are going to experience great tribulation. Maybe it's not going to be the tribulation if you want to define your terms, but don't think that God's people will not experience great tribulation, great suffering. It is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter says that right now, if necessary, you're being tried by various trials. You're being tested like gold being refined in fire as you wait for your hope, for, for your living hope, for the salvation that will come. God delivers the people from sin through suffering to glory, to glory, to his kingdom, to his home, to resurrection life that lasts forever and ever and ever, where we are glorified like the stars that shine forever. The, the return from exile is much, much bigger than we could ever imagine. The glory that awaits us is much bigger, and all of it happens in Christ. All of it happens in Christ. He's the one that's cut off to save us from our sin. He's the one that suffered, and, and, and now we suffer with him. We share in his sufferings in this life. We proclaim his gospel as we suffer. He's the one that was resurrected, and so we will, we will be resurrected with him. Because he was raised, we have hope that when we're raised, we'll be raised to life and not to death. Jesus Christ is the one in whom God delivers his people from sin, through suffering, to glory. And that, that statement is reality. That statement is the vision that we don't naturally think about when we walk out in the morning. That, that statement is what life is about. God delivering a people from sin, through suffering, to glory in Christ. That's what your life is about as an exile. Now, the question we need to ask before we conclude is, is now what? Now what? And, and I want to challenge you that a lot of times we read these chapters and the question that's on our minds is then what? We want to say, then what? Okay, so it's so a tribulation, then what? And then, okay, so 70 years, then what? This many weeks, then what? And, and we, we just want to know a timeline. We want to make a chart. And we want, want to know how it all works out together. But, but the, text that the, question, the, the question that the text wants to ask us is not then what, it's now what? It's, it's how should you live now? How should you live in light of this? And I want to look at two passages in these chapters to help us understand how we should live in light of this truth. And so first, uh, turn, turn with me to 1132. 
chapter 11, 32. This, this is coming right in the middle of a section that's describing this, this ruler who makes war against God's people. It's describing his exploits. It's describing what he does against God's people. And in 11.32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So how should we live? How should we live? First, know your God. Know your God. We saw this in Daniel's life. We saw in Daniel chapter 6 in the lion's den how many times God God was referred to as Daniel's God. And we saw that Daniel would go up to his room and to his window every single day and he he would look to Jerusalem and he would pray to God three times a day every day for his whole life because he wanted to know his God and because he knew his God, he was able to live as a faithful exile. And whatever other applications we make will not be possible if we do not know our God. The the, the first responsibility of an exile is to know your God. Know your king. Know the one you're hoping in. in. And and I want to point out to you that in these sections, we see Daniel at it again in chapter 9. What is he doing? He's studying his Bible, and he's responding. (laughs) I mean, right in the middle of apocalyptic literature, someone studying their Bible and praying studying their Bible, seeing what God's saying, trying to understand it, and confessing their sin, and adoring God, and making petition to God, and seeking his glory. Right, right there in the middle of it. And so that, that's how you know your God. You know your God by spending time with him. You know your God by getting in his word. You know your God by hearing what he says, and by responding in real relationship, with real prayers, and real petitions, and real confessions for his glory. That's how we know our God. And so let's be a people who, first of all, in light of the fact that God is delivering a people from sin, through suffering, to glory in Christ, let's know our God. Let's pursue knowing him. Now, look back at 32. The people who know their God shall stand firm. They shall stand firm. So integrally connected with knowing God is this standing firm. No one's going to stand firm who doesn't know their God. You see, in the verses before, It describes people who don't know their God. In verse 30, uh, ships will come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw. He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. And then 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So there are people who are not standing firm. There are people who are being attacked by this man who is making war against God's people, and they are violating the covenant. They're forsaking the covenant. They're shrinking back. But the people who know their God will stand firm. The people who know their God will stand firm. And it says in verse 33, The wise shall make many understand, though for some days they will stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So they're standing firm to the point of death. They're standing firm as they are being killed by swords, as their houses are being plundered, as they are being taken captive. They are standing firm in their faith because they know their God. Every day today, Christians are killed because they're standing firm in their faith. And you might not have someone coming over to your house today saying, recant or I will kill you, but that could happen someday. It does happen every day. And all of us will experience persecution. All of us will experience temptation where someone threatens us and we are tempted to not stand firm. And this text is calling us to stand firm in those moments, to not compromise truth, to not shrink back from declaring a bold witness for Christ, to stand firm in the gospel, to stand firm for Christ, and to do that because you know your God. And so the second application is be be ready to stand firm. Now the third application is in this verse again, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. They shall stand firm and take action. Now, I'll take a little break here to talk about apocalyptic movies, all right? Um, There's a lot of apocalyptic movies out there, and um, I think there's probably one called The Apocalypse, even, all right? So what is is the consistent theme of apocalyptic movies? It, It is that someone or some group of people see a vision of the end of the world. 
they, they see that the world is going to end. They, they, they see impending doom, impending disaster for all people. And then these movies, what they do is they trace out that once these people see what's coming, they are consumed with needing to try to stop it. They're consumed with trying to save the world once they see what's coming. That, that's just Hollywood, right? That, that is Hollywood telling us this story that when people see that everyone else in the world is, is in danger, they try to stop it. People, people naturally want to, to save others. That, that's Hollywood's version of apocalypse, right? How much more true should that be for us who were condemned, who have been saved, who have been reconciled, who know God's plan, who know their salvation, and we've been told that there is a day where not only will you be raised to eternal life, but those who don't know Christ will be raised to eternal condemnation. The people around you will be raised to eternal suffering, eternal death, eternal contempt, eternal shame. It never ends. They'll never get any closer to that being over, and that's going to happen the same day that you are raised to eternal life. We should take action. We should move in response to that. That should compel us outward to people. Look at verse 14 in this chapter. Verse 14 of chapter 11. In those days, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Okay, that's wrong action. Okay, that, that is people who, in response to persecution, in response to suffering, say, let's fight back. Let's fight back. Let's make an army. Let's, let's fight back and let's try to bring in the kingdom of God ourselves. Let's try to fulfill the vision ourselves. And they fight back and they fail and they're killed. That's, that's wrong action. Right action is, is in verse 33. They'll take action. The wise among the people shall make many understand. The wise among the people shall make many understand. And while they're doing that, they will die in the process. They will stumble by sword and captivity and plunder as they make many understand. And then look at chapter 12, the resurrection, verse 3. Who are those who are those who are raised to everlasting life? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Who's raised to everlasting life? Those who turn many to righteousness are the ones who are raised to everlasting life. That is a defining mark of anyone who has eternal life. In this life, they turn many to righteousness. Turning people to righteousness, helping people understand, sharing the gospel so that people can be saved on that day defines those who will be resurrected to eternal life. And it's inconceivable to say that you believe what these chapters teach and you don't seek to turn many to righteousness. It's inconceivable to say that you believe in this version of reality, but then not to move toward people, not to move toward the lost. Instead, when, when you're persecuted, to fight back. When you're persecuted, to say, we need to cling to our rights, we need to do something about it. That's, that's not someone who understands this vision of reality. This vision of reality tells us suffering is coming. After suffering will be deliverance. Everyone will be raised to life or death. All we can do right now is help many people understand so that they can be saved on that day. So take action by taking the gospel to the lost. And then finally, so now what? Wait expectantly. Wait expectantly. 